Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. It is we, the Andrews Three. It is we, the back, PE crew. Back <laughs> PE crew. at long last. <laughs> oh, my goodness, you two. It's been a month, more than a month. I know. It's been weeks. We have been scattered to all the corners of the map. Yeah, let's let's do a quick update. And what, How the heck are you? Where have you been? Where haven't we been? Well, that is the question. <laughs> that is the question. Megan, you start. Where have you been? What have you been up to? Oh man, well I took a I took a trip to the East Coast for multiple reasons. I was there for Charlie, our younger brother's graduation from college. He graduated from Hillsdale and I was there for that. And then I tagged onto the end of that trip a little a little fun for myself. I went to see the Taylor Swift concert <laughs> at Foxborough <laughs> Stadium and it was so awesome. It was the rainiest outdoor show I've ever experienced. It, it was a downpour for 12 hours, so much oh so that, and it was a warm rain, so it was fine. And Taylor was awesome. But it was like rain pouring down my back. I wore like knee high rain boots because I was thinking ahead, you know, I was going to be ready for this. They filled with water and water was pouring out the tops of them for 12 hours. Oh my word. <laughs> Isn't there like a, a swift lyric for this? Like, Something about st- standing in the rain. rain. Yeah, there's so much. yeah, she loves rain. She loves to sing about rain. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it felt very fitting and so, so epic. Anyway, I have been having a great time, <laughs> but I'm, you know, significantly more comfortable now than I was that night. <laughs> I believe you. That just sounds, well, so we had a similar experience. We went and saw a Coldplay show in Chicago at which it rained so hard that there was there was like inclement weather warnings and they had to evacuate the stadium. Like a shelter in place warning or something? Yeah. Like eventually they called a halt to the show and Coldplay is awesome. So they refused to stop and played us one more song. But you and you see him on the Jumbotron, right? This giant screen. And the drummer is sitting back there screaming into his band director microphone. We have got to get off the stage. And you could see him mouthing. We're going to get struck by lightning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really was, a danger. It was insane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's the kind of experience that you'll never forget. Yeah. Well, and you also think, I'm sure you thought this too, the artist will probably never forget this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm such a Taylor fan and I won't, not all of our listeners are. In fact, I can imagine that hardly any of our listeners are Taylor Swift fans. If you're not a Swifty, get on board. (laughs) I know. She's a really great performer, though. She's super charismatic and really relatable. And she said a couple different times, over the course of the night, this is a crowd and a night that I'll never forget in my whole career. So it's super fun that you guys are here. And I thought, oh man, that's <laughs> so <Taylor."> awesome. <laughs> well, we were we were having a totally different kind of fun. Um, we were on a trip for work to Alaska, wherein we saw four. Do we call them cities or are they settlements? Towns. Frontier um, towns? <laughs> yeah, towns. I mean, we were in Anchorage. That's a real city. And Juneau, which is also a real city. Anyway, 
Alaska is beautiful and utterly vast. Emily, what are your Alaska comments? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I have more to add. It was gorgeous. It was kind of, uh, by the end, it got to be like a little too much. Like yeah, it's right. hard to take in how big the yeah. mountains are. Like, I don't have room in my heart for all this beauty anymore. <laughs> yep. I felt that Ian and I spent a year living in Colorado and it was a similar feeling. Like I, it's like twinged with guilt. Like uh-huh. I, I literally can't look at this anymore because I can't, there's nothing for me to do with it anymore. <laughs> I can't process wow, this. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In particular, there was a place we went to called the shrine of St. Therese. And it's like this little tiny island on which is an old stone church. And it is surrounded on all sides, 360 degrees, by ocean and mountains. So you're on this big inlet of the ocean, and there are snow-capped peaks all the way around it. Whoa. And it is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Anyway, saw some beautiful stuff, came home. And we came home to a giant pile of Victor Hugo reading. I was going to say, speaking of you guys, things that are overwhelming. <laughs> Here's my question, and you listeners will, will understand what I mean. Who, in your view, is the inheritor of culture full stop? Is it France? I mean, there, so there's a line in here. I think it might be that we have seen Victor Hugo at his unselfconscious, raw, most extreme in this passage for today. He really let loose. That's for sure. He did. He cut loose. In fact, he at one point stepped behind or stepped from behind the veil and decided to speak to you as the author and characterize his own work. Tell us what his book was. Yep. Which is an attempt to usher the mind of man to God, which is uh, seems a little. I still feel about your definition of that sentence, but we can get to that. Yeah, later. we can get to that later. But like, <laughs> I just can't even with this with the reading for today. We have like three plot points sprinkled amid <laughs> dozens of pages of some of the most exaggerated hyperbole I think I I've ever read. Well, yeah. Can you even say exaggerated hyperbole? Is that a thing? I mean, I look, I defend it's myself. Accurate. Victor Hugo could say it. He would say it. He would say exaggerated hyperbole. He would find four other words for hyperbole and string them all together in the same <laughs> sentence. <sighs> Megan, you go. No, I, I don't think I could have said it better myself. <laughs> it did feel like what Victor Hugo has been offering us in terms of like a literary genre all this time is romanticism, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's an overblown and dramatized way of looking at the world with thematic significance. So he is using hyperbole and has been all along on purpose. But he did sort of, um, well, he full sent in this section. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Victor Hugo is the author version of Tom Cruise jumping a motorcycle (laughs) off a cliff. And you're like, are you, you're kind of, you're getting old, bro. Is. is this a good idea? I wonder if that's, if that we're going to encounter that a lot on this podcast. I wonder because the, the bloviators, as you put them, the ones who expand instead of contract are the romantics. And yeah. it's all the same time period. It's the same time period as Tolstoy. They gave us all the elephants because <laughs> they just needed an editor. <laughs> It's the same time period as like Moby Dick, although Moby Dick is better than than it doesn't. Um, it's Ooh, not quite as hard. <laughs> I realize I did not mean like quality wise. I meant more like it doesn't do the same thing that right. Hugo is doing. But um, I do think that's the case, and so we're gonna probably encounter this a lot. <laughs> I'm just gonna read. I'm just gonna read this as an example. So at the top of page 1238 in my edition, 
after. <laughs> oh, so this is the part where I looked across the room at Emily and I said, you have 20 pages coming up of just ridiculousness. It was and five. she looks at me and she goes, it's five. And I said, it felt like 20. <laughs> um, so 1238, he opens after speaking for such a long time on the same theme and just a, a million different metaphors stacking on top of one another when one would have done. And, and I was so frustrated and I encountered this sentence, one more word before returning to the fray. And I wrote and next like, to it, I, I bet not. <laughs> <laughs> so at the, at the bottom of that page, he says, the book the reader now has before his eyes, from one end to the other, in its whole and in its details, whatever the omissions, the exceptions or the faults, is the march from evil to good, from injustice to justice, from the false to the true, from night to day, from appetite to conscience, from rottenness to life, from brutality to duty, from hell to heaven, from nothingness to God. Starting point, matter. Goal, the soul. Hydra at the beginning, angel at the end. <laughs> okay, so what I hear him saying is that this book is an embodiment of progress. And he's capturing a moment in time that he sees as like a crux of the march of progress. Mm -hmm. And he does believe, we can say this finally and for sure, he does believe mankind is on like a Hegelian march towards some kind of utopia. Right. And it just isn't necessarily a straight line because we pause, we sometimes go backwards a little bit, but the... The general graph is always going to be upwards. Right. But only in one very specific place, France. The general <laughs> line is going to be upwards in France. Well, France is leading the vanguard now is what he thinks. Yes. I just don't. I don't. I, is this a historically supportable comment? I mean, he's been a decent historian throughout, I feel. Well, this is definitely like romantic Hegelian philosophy. It's very, again, very similar to Tolstoy. Tolstoy right. thought it was Russia leading he the vanguard. He was vanguard. capable of nationalism, too. Yep. Hugo thinks it's France. Heigl thought it was Germany. It's just, this is very time, like, this is of its time in a big way. That's a very moderating comment, but I got to say again, <laughs> rank nationalist much? Rank in the sense of smelly people? I mean, goodness gracious. At one point, he calls out what I would argue is objectively a much more successful revolution across the water on our side of the pond and throw shade. He's, he's, well, it's because <laughs> again, is I'm just so offended to, for America. Just, <laughs> it's not, no, no, no. It's nothing Listen, to do with America. Hugo, it's, it's the, you touched a sacred cow. <laughs> it's no, 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 no. That's not even true. Sorry, it's, it's literally just, it's literally just that if we're talking, he's looking at, at the world and he's saying revolution is essentially noble because it's humanity doing what humanity was made to do, yearning for something better, yearning towards utopia, right? And when individual rights are threatened, mankind rises up. And he's he's been very realistic, frankly, for a romantic about revolution. He said, look, it's messy. It contains all of the worst of mankind as well as all of the best. I choose to focus on the best, et cetera, et cetera, right? With all of these thoughts about revolution, he's examining a failed one in France and has the temerity to say, this failed one is the vanguard of human culture. While currently over the water, the first revolution, the one that came before the French revolution and the one that didn't slaughter at the hands of okay. the guillotine an entire culture you are saying is going on and and look it wouldn't i wouldn't have a problem with him not mentioning it at all but instead he throws shade at it 
you are speaking as someone from the 21st century, though. I, I mean, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that you're an exaggerator. And so I feel like I have to stand in the gap. Well, me, so what <laughs> but, you're saying is that me and Hugo deserve each other. Yes, what you're saying. Yes, 100%. Okay, so two points to what you just said. The first is that he would not consider the French Revolution a failed one. He's writing with the perspective of 1848 in mind, which he opens this book with. Right. And that was a successful campaign. Louis Philippe is deposed the the republic of france is created is it actually is still success, successful today so that happens and then when it comes to america he's writing in the 1800s america is still practicing slavery right. or um this book might have been published a, l- a little after but you know civil war is the context here so right and he is very clear at certain points in this novel that he is an, an abolitionist. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, of slaves and women, et cetera. And so when he looks across the water, he does see a failed revolution because it has not successfully Freed achieved its mankind. aims. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. All of that is fair. And dear listeners, take Emily's part here, but I got one more shot to throw. <laughs> <clears throat> The modern ideal has its model in art and its means in science. It is through science that we shall realize that august vision of the poet's social beauty. We shall reproduce Eden by A plus B. At the point civilization is reached, the exact is a necessary element of the splendid. And the artistic sentiment is not merely served, but completed by the scientific organ. Dream must calculate. Art, which is the conqueror, must bear on science, which is the mover. The solidity of the base is important. The modern spirit is the genius of the Greece of Greece with genius of India for its vehicle. Alexander on the elephant. And a couple of pages later, he says, or a couple of paragraphs later, he says, France is of the same quality of people as Greece and Italy. She is Athenian via the beautiful and Roman via the great. In addition, she is good. Really? She gives herself. She is more often than the other peoples in the spirit of devotion and sacrifice, except that this spirit takes her and leaves her. And he begins to make excuses before throwing this shot. France has her relapses of materialism, and at certain moments, the ideas that obstruct that sublime brain lack anything that recalls French greatness and take on the dimensions of a Missouri. South. Or South Carolina. I understand they're in the South. (laughs) What is to be done? The giantess is playing the dwarf. Immense France has her childish whims. That is all. So if I take your meaning, Emily, because the French weren't engaged in slavery, they get a pass. And become the inheritors of Well, no, he's clearly not giving France entirely a pass. I mean, we're in the middle of revolution right now, and the French are not doing a good job, but the people are fighting against it. There's a it's it's the whole complex thing there, but I do think he would say the spirit of the people is more in line with the principles of progress than in America, where there seems to be an inherent materialism. And you know, he's not entirely wrong about that. But two things. One, I got distracted because I really think we need a t-shirt of maybe not Alexander, but like Victor Hugo riding on an elephant. Yeah. yeah I think so too. Um, <laughs> for our oh podcast. Oh my gosh, 100%. we totally do. <laughs> um, How to Alexander ride an elephant. elephant. That's what we put underneath it. <laughs> How to ride. How to ride. <laughs> <laughs> if you would wear that t-shirt, please come to our Facebook page and drop a comment. <laughs> I just want to know how we're going to sketch Victor Hugo. Like, how are we going to make it obvious well, Megan, that it's him? You're, you're the artist, <laughs> so get working. <laughs> I don't think oh, it's possible to sketch Hugo without making him Napoleon, I'm is drinking it? out of my elephant mug today. Oh, my this gosh. like a <laughs> so podcast appropriate for those watching on YouTube. Okay, second thing. The passage you read, I agree, is problematic. It's very 
that is a holder over of enlightenment thinking yeah. that he thinks that science is capable of defining truth. Rationality is capable of leading us to truth. Yeah. yeah. Education is the ultimate light. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this focus on progress, right? Um, what do you actually, this, this might be a bit of a distraction, but do you agree with Hugo that a, as society moves along, progress is what we're encountering, and B, that it is an ultimate good. We, interestingly, as a company, had to listen to that episode on Leo Strauss, and even though I have all kinds of problems with his thinking, there was an interesting part of the podcast that pointed out the fact that Strauss, he noted that when we look at progress, we're only, if those the, those Enlightenment thinkers are only looking at certain markers and ignoring other markers. Mm-hmm. So when we like, yes, modern medicine, you know, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are certain markers where it does indeed look like progress. But when it comes to more permanent things, maybe not so much. Ian, can you articulate your question again? Yeah, it seems like Hugo Hugo is filtering everything he sees about society, at least. Maybe not about the human spirit and, and the individual, but about society through the lens of progress. Provided that we are moving forward all is well, fundamentally, such that progress is the is the ultimate good. It's the ultimate barometer of a successful culture. I wonder what we think about that. Well, I don't know if this goes with what you were saying, Emily, but my first thought is in what category is he charting progress? So I think I would use the word category. You used the word marker. There are lots of different areas in which progress can be charted. And he is being very broad with his treatment of the word. But I think that there is a section I was looking for it just now and couldn't find it. There's a big, long section. I think it's Angel Ross is speaking, but I heard Hugo in him trying to define the three principles of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. And he, he basically offers those three principles as ways to chart progress. If a society has managed to present liberty on the shoulders of brotherly love and founded in the equality of all mankind, then it is a successful society that is working towards progress. That seems to be the clearest articulation of his definition of progress that I'd heard him articulate. We're kind of getting into the meat of the matter. I wonder if we should step back for a second and just kind of talk about the shape of this book one of Jean Valjean. Yeah. So a lot of important, well, a very small number of very important things happens in this section. I suppose the quickest summary would be we watch the boys at the barricade heroically defend it against an oncoming regiment and then eventually die without exceptions. The only people that escape are Valjean and Marius. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. I thought Granter, this, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but I thought Granter's role in that was tragic. <laughs> yeah. Well, every bit of it was tragic. The whole thing, the the scene where there are four basically national guard costumes <laughs> that mm-hmm. they could they could put on and they all are um trying to decide which four men need to go home and take up their responsibilities to give up their their deaths on the barricade and go home and take care of their families instead and they're right. all trying to avoid that they all want to die it's it's a suicide attempt mm-hmm. and there, it, well it was really thought provoking <laughs> yeah it seems to go hand in hand with the the discussion that Hugo has about um, the tension between individuality and 
humanity in its progress and how mm. individuality kind of butts up against it and makes its own claims. And but but in this section, the section you're talking about, Megan, it seems very positive that these men are are being sent home to take care of their of their mothers and sisters and daughters because Hugo has shown us what happens when women are abandoned in this civilization. Yeah. I couldn't tell what Hugo wanted us to feel in that scene because on the one hand, here's, I think it was Courfeyrac is the one speaking and he's telling everyone, you need to remember your responsibilities. Think of all the people who are relying on you. It's very noble to give up your life so long as that that sacrifice doesn't extend to anyone else. But if anyone else is affected by you dying today, then actually you're hurting someone else's life, it constitutes murder instead of just self-sacrifice. And there's this big, long speech. But then Hugo's careful to say that Corfeyrac doesn't think for one second about his own mother. So he tells everyone else to think about their mothers, but he doesn't consider his own. He's going to die. He's one of the selfish, according to his own definition. I wasn't sure what Hugo wanted us to, to take away from that scene. Are both of these noble and good to go home and protect your family or to stay here and, and, and die for the sake of a principle? It seemed yeah, complicated. I wonder, it does seem complicated. And I think we noted this in War and Peace too, that there are some ways in which I wonder if the narrative elements complicate the kind of what Ian would call pat philosophy that overlays the top of it, that he introduces scenes that make those statements more complex. I agree. And I wished I had the conscious thought as I was reading this time that he had uh, lightened up on the philosophy sections a little bit and just let the the genre that he's chosen speak for itself. Because those scenes that are human and plot heavy and character driven are more thought provoking and powerful. Uh, at least to me, they were. They were more thought provoking and powerful when it came to his philosophy than the sections where he stepped out and did a prose chapter. And I, I think that he's a really gifted storyteller and his story, it works and it does communicate all these themes and stir your heart and your emotions and make you consider a revolution to be a worthy thing and consider the role of strong men in their families and in their communities to be a worthy thing as well. That scene would have spoken for itself. And I don't think we needed the philosophy section before and after and during and <laughs> And all around all it. Around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why do you guys, this is kind of a out of left field question, but why do you guys think that he chose to open this book with a meditation on completely different barricades, the 1848 barricades, the Charbonus and Scylla, as well, opposed to, to... Oh, I had an idea about this. Go ahead, Ian, you first. To walk back some of the, I mean, not to walk back. You, you listen again, re rewind. Listen to all of my complaints don't, again. Don't Glory it. in it. <laughs> Glory in the complaints. Victor Hugo deserves them. But I will say, I think he introduces those barricades because he wants us to understand he's chosen this particular moment to tell the story of this much smaller flash in the pan in order to make a point that, that ironically, not all of these revolutionary actions on the part of the, of the people are the final word. In a conflict, right? He that even, they build. He tells us in his philosophy section that he's more sympathetic to those failed causes, that he thinks he's trying to elicit our compassion mm -hmm. instead of our disdain towards those kind of things. So that maybe it does explain why he has chosen 1832 as his subject matter instead of 1848. Right. 
and simply that 1832 leads to 1848. Right. That one wouldn't have happened without the other. I like the idea of trying to elicit our compassion as well. And I, the thing that stuck in my mind as he was describing those other two barricades is that he uses the barricade as an image of the man who built it. So he characterizes the barricade. He gives it a personality. He, he draws our emotions into it. And then he says, the man who built this barricade, he's shown his personality in it. And here's what becomes of him. I think we're guided then to think of Enjolras's barricade as an example of him. And here we have, it's, it's completely hopeless. There's actually no escape in his barricade. If you think of the construction of it, there's no, there's no chance for retreat. And that is absolutely a characterization of him as a model of the revolutionary and of all of the, the way this, this turns out. And I think that he's trying to elicit our compassion and our, he's trying to stir our hearts the same way. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a, uh, a prison, which comes up again yeah. in this section. Also, thinking more of like the shape of things, the shape of the barricade, the construction of the room behind the barricade where it used to be a drinking room, but now it's like a mortuary. There's a lot of the image of the cross over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that. What do you guys think about that? I Yeah, I marked that passage too with the Javert standing against the pole and Mabuf on the table. They form a cross. I couldn't <laughs> if it if it were me making this image, I would have like Jean Valjean as one of the beams, but it's because Javert, you know, Javert, Justice, uh, Valjean, Mercy, but right. instead, I don't quite understand Mabuff's symbolic role in that cross. I think he's. I think Mabuff has become, in particular, because of the manner of his death, he's become a symbol for humanity ground under the wheel of civilization of society. Yeah. And Javert stands for order in that society. And the wheel that ground him. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Well, it seems to be more of the focus on the revolution rather than the theological conversation. Yeah, yes, that makes sense. Agreed. Since it's and placed that, within that the barricade, of, that makes sense. You know? <laughs> that might mm -hmm. be part of why I'm so steamed because I'm really here for the other story. <laughs> and he's been trying to drag in this, this, and I just am not, I'm not as with him as I would be. But we, I took us off in this, in this direction and we were doing a really good job of summarizing the actual action of this scene. And we do touch on that other theological conversation in the action. So the first thing that happens is, is the barricade, there begins to be fighting on the barricade. And the second thing that happens is Jean Valjean shows up and offers his own National Guard outfit to save one more life. Five guys get sent off to live their lives and cry about it. And the rest of them are ready to sacrifice themselves. But Jean Valjean is like this quiet presence who's providing safety and care. And he's just kind of silently a provisional character. Yeah. Until mm -hmm. Without killing. Yeah. He, he never kills, but he is constantly protecting, uh, taking care of the wounded, etc. Until... Right he realizes that Javert is back in the in the drinking house with Hushaloop or whatever his name is, <laughs> his drinking house. What is that place called? I've got to remember the name of it. Uh, Corinth. Oh, yeah. The Corinth. Corinth. The Corinth. Okay, so back in the Corinth, Javert is there, and suddenly Jean Valjean and Javert are going to have a face-off. And I thought this was the coolest little action part of our scene because, of course, those of you who've seen the movie, this is a very – or seen the, the stage play or anything. This is a super thematically rich scene where Javert expects and, and is kind of gloating at the idea of Jean Valjean killing him as revenge. And he's, he's surprised at Jean Valjean's 
mercy. Or in his own words, irritated. Yeah, irritated. Breaks him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we don't, I love that we don't get to see the consequence of that mercy yet. We just watch Mm -hmm. him be irritated and walk off free down the street. And and I just am so excited to see how this turns out. (laughs) Well, and I also love the added detail that I haven't seen a stage play or a film introduce yet that Marius watches this mm. happen, realizes what's happening, and has a previous connection with Javert, right? Who gave him the pistols and helped him with the Tenardiers and all of that. And so he rushes off and then too late, and here's the shot. So he now believes that Valjean, he doesn't know it's Valjean, right? He thinks it's murdered a police officer. Yeah, murdered a police officer. So now there's an added layer of confusion surrounding Valjean's character from one of our other principal characters who happens to be in love with his daughter, Cosette, and we haven't even gotten to her yet. I would love to talk about my man, Mary. (laughs) Yeah. That well, my first question is, what the actual heck is he thinking? He, he like, I love that question. What a great start. He sees, so he sent off this letter to Cosette. He has been in despair because he is convinced that Cosette was taken by her father off to England. He thinks they're gone, and then her father walks in the barricade, and he is still full of despair, even though there is actual proof that the family is still in France. What? Why? Why is he still so determined to sacrifice himself? Well, I think Hugo would look at you with a blank stare and say, well, despair is like the ecstasy of a revolution. So (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly what he would say. (laughs) So French. (laughs) It's the Frenchest of Frenchy French stories. So, okay. Can I say one other thing about Valjean, though? Yes, but then we have to talk about Marius. (laughs) I think it's really funny, really funny, that Valjean can't be the hero unless he's a crack shot with a rifle. I know. I loved that. And also sneaky skills. He's a sniper. Sneaky skills. He's such a sniper, in fact, that he can Lone Ranger style, I kid you not, (laughs) he can shoot people's helmets off without shooting their heads off. I mean, he is... He is an absolute god of war who refuses to use his god of war status. Actually, actually, though I am laughing, to use the phrase god of war in this particular scene that is so rich with Greek mythology is very appropriate. You've got Andrew Apollo on the other hand. So why can't Jean Valjean be the god of war? Yeah. I do think it's interesting that Hugo spends a lot of time being torn. Um, Maybe that's not the right way to put it. But he recognizes both that these revolutions have to fight them. They have to break their own principles in order to get what they want. So um, that scene where Angel Ross and I think it's Kofarak or Combefer, I forget which one, are looking out at the artillery guard. And he says, what do you see? He's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, uh, Andro says, he's my brother. And they have to kill him, even so, even though his companion says, please don't kill him. Yeah, Gamba Ferris says, don't kill him. Can we just not kill him? And so, but Andro knows that they have to. And so the violence breaks the the principles that are leading the revolution. And Hugo tells us that he knows it's necessary. He wants us to have compassion on them. And yet his protagonist is not a part of that revolution or yeah. that insurrection or mm-hmm. uprising or whatever the heck he wants to call it now. Um, but but uh, so, again, I think that complicates what is going on 
here at the barricade that we are supposed to honor these men, the, the tragic sacrifice of life in the name of progress, which Hugo is saying is worthy. And at the same time, it is not the ideal. And Jean Valjean kind of is in his role as a protector without engaging in the violence. Yeah, I think we should stress it. I mean, there's been a lot of hilarity over Hugo's foibles in this episode, which I think is appropriate. He said some crazy stuff. We haven't even gotten to the craziest part yet. <laughs> um, but also, it is high drama and it is full of pathos and it is very, very difficult to watch these young men die because the, the fundamentals of the situation are they are not the only people they thought pursuing this uprising. They thought this was a popular uprising and there was every indication that there would be barricades like this all over the city and that the people of France, the oppressed, were going to rise. And what basically happens is everybody else goes, ah, we don't, nah, not really into this and leaves these boys out there by themselves with well, no hope of literally rescue. literally right outside their doors. I thought the yeah. most heartbreaking yeah. scene was when he steps back and says, by the way, all of these buildings all around the the barricade are full of people who have are they're just plugging their ears to the screams of the boys. They're literally they're schoolboys outside the doors banging on their doors begging for their lives and they're going to let them die. Which is I mean that is like it's you said full of pathos. What I it, what it leads me to wonder though you guys is in the thematic or philosophical conversation what Angel Ross and I think Hugo are saying over and over again is this is a story of death and rebirth. This is mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. light of the future coming to meet the darkness of the past and we're moving forward into the light. But also the scene that he's painting, I can't get over emotionally how it just feels stillborn. This feels meaningless. It really does. And all of those men die and none of the people rise. And on the one hand, okay, take a larger view, step back and look at history. This is one, you know, tiny stone in the river of progress. And I think Hugo would say all those things to me. But the story that he's offered me, there is a, I mean, I can't get over the conflict and the contrast there. It feels stillborn. It doesn't feel like a redemptive resurrection story, at least Mm -hmm. for the boys. Yeah. Except for on the individual level of Javert and Marius, who are are saved by Valjean from the clutches of death. Well, and even Grantaire, right? And Ooh, I don't know. I thought that was really dark. And sad. I thought that was the well, worst part. Of course, part. it's dark. They're both they're they're being slaughtered. On the other hand, what we've seen from Grantaire is this desire to be noble, like Angelras, right? That he looks up to and idolizes, and I think. I think even the last time we saw Grand Terre, Anjaras said something cutting to him, right? That he maybe deserved. Yeah, he's been s- drunk asleep through this whole thing. Yeah, he's been sitting there drunk Which through the whole thing. Which is honestly kind of impressive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know. When he staggered to his feet, I thought, how did you sleep through this? <laughs> but his his immediate his immediate response to waking up in the situation is, oh, I'm dying with you. And then he turns to Anjaras and says, "Can I? Uh, will you permit me, basically? And it felt to me like we've seen an Anjaras who is captive to a vision and who is going to make this dramatic sacrifice because he believes it's meaningful. We, the readers, have some doubts about whether it is, but he thinks it is. And it's inhuman. It's made of him something implacable and godlike. And Well, he's not touched by any, any weapons mm-hmm. or bullets for the entire right. scene until the end. Yeah. He's another god of war. Mm-hmm. He's a god. Um, 
<laughs> well, he's called Apollo by the yeah. other by the other army. Right. And also a flower, which I thought was funny. It's it's as though I'm about to shoot a flower, the National Guard says. Yeah. Which I which is interesting and I this isn't what we should talk about next, but the the garden, the Luxembourg oh, yeah. garden. We gotta talk uh, about that soon. Yeah. Hugo is all about flowers and it's interesting that he I would not have drawn a link between flowers and Anjolras. <laughs> they to Well, me, but they, he's on about he's on about the beauty of of youth and idealism, right? There's a way in which only the young can be revolutionaries like the ones he's trying to paint. Hmm. Because they're they don't know enough. They don't know enough yet. To not be swept completely away by these ideas. They don't know enough yet to realize that they are small. And what that means is occasionally they are anything but small because their their commitment is overawes the people around yeah. them. And there's something compelling about it. I mean, Angel Ross pinned to a wall with bullets is fine, but my Angel Ross hangs from a flag like yeah. having fallen out a window, yeah. right? <laughs> and there's a, there your heart like leaps at that mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I yeah. don't know. Well, he makes a he makes a bunch of comparisons of the situation to other heroic moments in history. Leonidas and the three hundred Spartans, for example, and I, it's it is it's romanticism. It's a little overblown, but he has successfully captured the inspiring, heartening, blood quickeningness of these kinds of situations. And I thought it was I thought the scene was beautiful. Uh, heart-wrenching, but beautiful with Anjaras and Grantaire. But Emily, you said it would be easier to find redemption in those other plot lines as this is going on. Like this one, you really have to dig for, for the redemptive theme and you have to kind of glory in the tragedy. But there might be redemption in Marius's plot line or there might be redemption in Javert's plot line. What did you mean? Well, with Marius in particular, it's kind of Hugo allows it to stand above the political revolutionary ideas in that Marius is, well, I don't want to get too ahead. We have so much to talk about in Marius's storyline, but he is rescued from sacrificing himself for an ideal by the particular, Mm -hmm. by Jean Valjean, who decides in spite of uh, knowing that this boy intends to steal his daughter from him he he takes him and and rescues him from this situation and to me that allows uh, this is why i think it's complex the particular relationship is allowed to be more important for marius than the revolution and that is actually something that in his philosophy hugo kind of lamented that the individual needs of the the interests of the people are standing against progress. But it's good here that, that Marius is rescued. I think he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to do the Angel Ross thing. He's going to get, he is getting a chance to be reborn and have life. Mm. And that life is a life of relationship, not a life of ideals. Yeah, he makes much over and over again of the fact that Angel Ross has never had a romantic relationship. Patria. Patria. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's humorous in the way that youthful ideals are humorous, but but it's also a tragedy from Hugo's perspective, right? And even from the perspective of Angel Ross's friends. Um, when he, he kisses Mabuff twice, and they're the only two kisses he's ever given, is the way Hugo puts it. So there's something there's something about Marius's arc that I think Hugo would say is provided and protected by Angel Ross. Mm, that's good, yeah. And 
that's part of what makes it so gripping, I think. Well, while Marius is risking his life on the battlefield, for some reason, entirely unknown to me, I hope you guys can enlighten me, uh, Hugo changes our perspective to his lover, Cosette, waking up on this beautiful barricade morning. Uh, and being delighted and having a great day, he thinks because her bed is so pretty and white. <laughs> Because apparently Cosette is a ninny. Because she's a ninny. <laughs> I just, oh, there's oh, so man. many problems with this scene. So, so many problems. I just, we Could can laugh be? at it. <laughs> he says, we mustn't talk about virginity. And then he does for pages and pages. <laughs> Could it be that? <laughs> I think as the kids say, it's pretty cringe. <laughs> this bit on Cosette is pretty cringe. She just... You guys, I just can't get over that she's an idiot. Like, this, even if we're romanticizing womanhood, this is offensive. What she says as she hears the barricade noise out her window is, it's weird that people are opening and shutting carriage doors this early in the morning. You're not, you're not a child. What is the matter with you? Listen, I've heard some carriage doors open and shut in my day, and they don't sound like cannons. Okay? I know. She's just an idiot. But also, all of the imagery of the scene, he's holding her up, Hugo is, as the representative of that hope. She's She is dawn embodied. She is light. Is that, She's beautiful. Okay. She's the thing that Marius has hope in. He's going to go and have a future only if Cosette stays the way that he's presented her. She's like stuck in time. She's frozen in time as the hope for Marius. And I think I can see that that is thematically necessary, that she represents like family and future and relationship. Like you were saying, that's all of the thematic associations and allusions are to light and dawn and resurrection. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just can't get over that. I don't respect her as a person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, she's so clearly an object to Hugo. I mean, I could barely read the lines where he's talking. He's, he's like elevating and he wants to be elevating the beauty of innocent virgin youth or whatever and he wants to talk about her casual nakedness of which she's afraid you're like what? excuse me also like what has he ever like actually hung out with him i know he has the thing with hugo is that he <laughs> was a, a, a womanizer. Huge womanizer. yeah <laughs> well that seems clear in this section i mean it's a little rapey it well i did read it was a little rapey oh okay. man i just had to get that out there but she is, I mean, she is a symbol. She's a More symbol. than she is a person. She's an object. And She's objectified. to his credit, he has given us Eponine, who comes up again. Yes. Oh, man. In this section. And Eponine is not a symbol. She is a person. So he has done it. He can do it. He just chose violence. Just chose <laughs> not to. Well, also, I just also can't get over the fact that he apparently has no self-control. Because there are multiple times, and this happens in the philosophical sections and in the Cosette section, where he he tells you that he's not going to say it and then goes, okay, and says it anyway, right? Like, in extreme cases, mm. we may introduce the reader into a nuptial chamber, but not into a virgin's bedroom. Verse would hardly dare. Prose should not. And it's interior. I mean, I swear, I, like, oh, I he honest to goodness says that and then goes about describing her bedroom. I know. Here and then he and later on he says the indiscreet touch of the eye desecrates this dim penumbra whatever that means penumbra. here to gaze is to profane and I just wrote lol in this in the margins because here we are gazing right along with Hugo could the I old mean, lech 
could that be intentional? Could, well, what do could, you mean, Emily? I, let does us, he want us let to us do skip here. the chapter? Does he want what? us to go? Does he want us to go um, evangelical parent style and fast forward? No, I, no. I'm. I'm just. You know, <laughs> we always allow the author. Like we have to give the author credit. It's possible that it, you're right that he doesn't have self control, but could it also be intentional that he? We are profaning Cosette in some way, and that's the tension between the ideal and the real in this scene. But wouldn't it follow then that making the ideal into a particular is profaning? Well, that's, I, yeah, I think that's actually kind of what's going on in this whole book. Hmm. That's the barricades, right? It's that's the, a very smart comment, Emily. Yeah, that's a really good well, comment. Well, this is, thank it you. Is. I don't know. I don't know if it's real. I'm no, just trying here. I'm just, you know, I'm standing for, I'm planting a flag. I don't know if I'm, I might take it back later. I might be taking it back right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's a really good I comment. That, I think that's a very intelligent comment. On the other hand, by that definition, God profanes when he creates. Well, that's part of the romantic. That's part of the issue. I'm, I obviously have my own issues with romantic philosophy. I'm just yeah. trying to inhabit Hugo's world here. Well, that, it is a good question you bring up, though. Like, are we are we doing the work a disservice as as readers by snickering behind our hands at the romanticism? Yeah. And I don't think so. I mean, I think I think we in the very nature of the way we run this show are giving him his due for months. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is a little bit like having a, a close friend at this point and you, yeah. we love him. It's by all in good fun. <laughs> oh yeah. We, oh man, we made even, even harsher fun of Tolstoy at times. I think <laughs> we spoke, we spent with, with Tolstoy. It was like the company, what is it? Company is good for three days and then it goes bad. We spent way too long. With, way too long. With he Tolstoy. needed to go home to Russia. <laughs> go home um, to Russia. So <laughs> I, I'm thinking, though, because of your comment, Emily, about the ideal meeting the particular and the only one who can really successfully particularize the ideal is God, the ultimate creator, and how that dovetails with romanticism. All of that reminds me of the scene in the Luxembourg Gardens where yes, he yes. describes with big, long, flowery descriptions, tulip beds, actually. He describes tulips and flowers for a really long time. And the end of his big, long rumination is this paragraph that I just want to draw our attention to. It's on page 1217. The abundance of light was inexpressibly comforting. Life, sap, warmth, odor overflowed. Beneath creation, you felt the enormity of its source. In all these breezes, saturated with love, in this coming and going of reflections and reverberations, in this prodigious expenditure of rays, in this indefinite outlay of fluid gold, you felt the prodigality of the inexhaustible. And behind this splendor, as behind a curtain of flame, you caught a glimpse of God, millionaire of the stars. Hmm. Absolutely gorgeous. Wow. I mean, for all his bloviating, this is amazing. And I think might draw into focus Hugo's take on romanticism, which doesn't stop with look at all of these overblown dramatic feelings, but uses them as a way to emphasize the nature of God. And that project I do identify with. That project I think is worthy. And, and I think the image of flowers, which he has now used to relate to the little boys who are in the Luxembourg garden, they are like flowers. The flowers are for them in some ways. Angel Ross is a flower. It's it's a symbol of innocence that should be protected. I don't know. This seems like the flower is the particularization of something beautiful and good. 
and created by God and blessed with that association. I don't know. What do you guys think of all that? Well, he even, yeah, I love that too. And he even acknowledges a flaw that is in keeping with some of the things we were saying, which is that some people look at that nature, or he even says that God and forget the particular, right? That that they spend so much time worshiping nature that they forget about um, reality. And, and that they're that crippled. Is, Those who do yeah. that are crippled. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So talking about this Luxembourg Gardens thing, we should probably take a second to uh, have a moment of respectful silence for Gavroche. Yep. Yeah. The other, uh, I'll, I had underlined the passage Megan just read as one of the prettiest things in this novel so far. The other one is Gavroche's final moments, which maybe aren't as beautiful in terms of the prose, but as a symbol of the revolution and as a symbol of the, the posture of oppressed mankind in relationship to its oppressors, I just haven't ever read anything quite as good. It is spectacular. What do you guys make of his song that continually, I mean, his last verse, I underlined but it continually makes reference to voltaire and um rousseau rousseau and kind of blames them for his his uh experience Mm -hmm. oh here we go the translation on page 1213 of the last verse that he sings is i dropped from the air because of voltaire to the gutter i go because of rousseau dot 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 is this Joy is my nature because of Voltaire. Misery is my trousseau because of Rousseau. What is Hugo saying about the role of French intellectual history in this moment? If I knew more about French intellectual history, I'd have an <laughs> I answer know, for you. I was hoping someone else I would know I wish that I was all, all brushed up on my Voltaire <laughs> and my Rousseau. I, we should probably go ahead and do that. But I think maybe your comment is, is, is leading, though, Emily, that they represent enlightenment thinking or I don't know, this philosophy of reason as the ultimate perfectibility of man. Here we have the little particular Gavroche shaking his fist in the face of mm-hmm. all of that philosophy. Yep. Well, and it consumes itself, which yeah. is in the, to go back to the gardens where his little brothers are hanging out in the, around the section you were reading, he says, Hugo says something like all the animals were provided with food to eat and they sometimes ate each other but all was well. Yeah. I, I think that might be what's going on here. And it's all in the name of the ideals that the French philosophers posited, but the, as a result, they are, there is a part of progress in which they consume themselves on the journey towards Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Which isn't even necessarily um, an argument. It's just a lament. It's an observation. Yeah. Yeah. And that extends um, to a lot of places besides France, though Hugo thinks France is its beating center, apparently. And it's a it's a great comment. I think it's absolutely true and eloquent. And to make it a little a little boy who is fatherless and motherless and abandoned and is nevertheless completely full of ebullient joy all of the time. It's just man, it's one it's one of the most poignant things I've ever read, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, that, that that line that I read, the joy is my nature because of Voltaire, yeah. misery is my trousseau because of Rousseau, that in itself seems to embody what you're saying, yeah. both joy and misery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
as we look at one of the most miserable characters in the story and we admire him and kind of turn him to face the light as we're, you know, wishing him goodbye, I couldn't help but think of that theme that we've been coming back to over and over again. Every time Hugo offers us the darkest that human nature can be, like the lowest that a, a human being can sink to, there is some kind of reference to the sky and rain. And that's been happening at, since the very beginning when we first saw Jean Valjean walking through a field, shaking his fist at the heavens, right? If it rains, there is an answer from the heavens for you. If it doesn't, maybe there isn't kind of a thing. And here in the Luxembourg Gardens where we have Gavroche's little brothers and we know that their protector, Gavroche, has just died in the chapter right before. And here they are. They're not even being fed food that's good for the swans. I mean, they're, they're lower than animals. Stress me out. It's the just bun, horrible. The they, bun they take it out of the soaking. gross <laughs> swan water. I mean, the whole thing's gross. But in this moment, the the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie says it's going to rain musket balls, and then he looks up at the clouds, and perhaps too, the rain itself is going to rain. The heavens are joining in. Mm-hmm. I wrote at the top of the page a little fall of rain because I think again the people who designed the designed and directed the uh, musical were right on point thematically. But that oh, fall yeah. of rain waters these flowers and there's this redemptive image, even though human nature's at its lowest, that there is a participation from the heavens and there's someone seeing their suffering and he'll water them and they'll grow. And sometimes it rains musket balls and that mm-hmm. is also part of the rain. Yeah. That redeems. Yep. Yeah. I do think Megan, to your point that there is a constant underlying Hugo's philosophy. And that constant is God is not silent. Yes. He's involved and invested and joining in. I think that's a theme. That's encouraging. Even when, even when it could, it could rightly be said, where were you? How could you let Mm -hmm. this happen? Right. He's, he is looking for, he's looking for an architect in all of this. Oh man. The brioche bun. Poke that in your gun. <laughs> well, and even that is a poignant comment, right? Yeah. yeah. These boys are learning to act like Gavroche. Whew. Okay, that was really heavy, guys. Nice job. Really good. I'm proud of both of you. Thank you, Hugo, for your for your beautiful comments. On to next. Uh, it's coming, you guys. Behold. We, Marius has What, the been... one day more? Taking no, down into the sewers. Into the sewers. So oh, do you feel a little finally. bit like everyone who's ever told you about this book was lying to you? They lied to me. <laughs> they lied to me. I was told that there would be sewers. That's what I was told. <laughs> Instead, well, what there was is Hugo, the little brother of Tolstoy, bloviating. <laughs> <laughs> bloviating. No, the sewers are coming. Valjean and Marius have escaped down into the sewers. And I think we're about to understand what all the fuss was about with the sewers. So good luck. Good luck to all. <laughs> I appreciate you guys joining us. Yeah. We'd really, really like to hear your comments, corrections, complaints on the Facebook page. <laughs> I don't know about um, complaints. Don't tell us those. <laughs> don't tell us. Keep those to yourself. So go, go off to your readings again, and we will see you soon on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. 
Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.